I have a restaurant called Silo, which is the world's first restaurant that doesn't have a bin. Give me three words to describe your brain. Macro, micro, mercurial, mostly macro. My brain is, is it's divergent. <laughs> I see patterns of information rather than the information. My default psychology is a fearful one. There is this subconscious part of me wants to tell the world that I'm not worthless. We can't fix the problems of the world with the same thinking that created those problems. Our next guest is no stranger to pushing boundaries. I first met him on a stage in Toronto where he was wowing an audience with the story of Silo, his restaurant without a bin. Yep, a restaurant without a bin. Doug McMaster has worked at iconic restaurants like Noma, St. John's and The Fat Duck, continually challenging us to think differently about our food, our environment and even ourselves. While The Hidden 20% usually speaks with guests post-diagnosis, today we're starting at the beginning. In this episode, we find out where Doug's neurocuriosity began and discuss the significance of self-diagnosis at a time when medical assessments aren't accessible to everyone. Here we go. Let's see how great minds think differently. Doug, it's great to see you. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Ben, it's a pleasure. It's long overdue. Us long connecting. overdue. I kind of already feel like I love your brain, and that's such a maybe very, very fucking strange thing to say. But can you tell me in three words about your brain? Like, give me three words to describe your brain. Before I do, I can... That's three words. <laughs> <laughs> Before I do, I fell in love with your brain on a stage in Canada about five, six years ago, yep. seven years ago, you gave a presentation and it blew my mind. And I think we'd said hello before that presentation that you gave and, you know, immediately felt very comfortable in your presence, um, not knowing why. And um, and then saw you speak. And then I was like, we're very similar, yeah. very, very similar. And there's something going on in your brain that <laughs> I think I love it because I relate to it. And there's a big truth in in human nature there. But um, three words describe my brain. Macro, micro, mostly macro. Mercurial. Oh, good words. Um, so I mean, that's three, all beginning with M. I'll just, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there then. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about macro. I see patterns of information rather than the information. Um, macro view of seeing systems all connecting um, and some examples of that in real life is, you know, I learn about psychology one, one day, and the next day I notice patterns of behavior on a, from a psychological lens the next day and just I see relationships and patterns and see trends and that's a sort of macro quality. It's particularly good for system learning. How do you bring that into your your cooking and recipes like mm -hmm. yeah how does that yeah. manifest so i have a restaurant called silo which is the world's first restaurant that doesn't have a bin so good look at that headline it's just great that is from a macro point of view achieved by uh, a, a physical restaurant space with a, a bunch of chefs in front of house and um and other colleagues 
once upon a time, I was like, right, how do we not have a bin? And it's this reverse engineering design process in which we need to get everything we need from nature because a simple observation is that in nature, there is no plastic. Uh, there is no bin. Food is naked at its origin. And so if we go to that origin, we can um, bring it in reusable vessels. And this is all system design. And then from the point of view of the kitchen, you know, we have a compost bin in the kitchen. We call them compost silos. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, See what you did there. And then we try and minimize to like 99%, which is where we're at a decade later, 99% of the food that comes through the front door we're maximizing in creative circular ways to land on the plate for somebody to eat, whether that's the guest or even the staff. And then by the end of the sort of food chain, you've got this pulp uh, from stocks and different processes in the kitchen that's like less than 1% of the total volume of food that comes through the front door is then very compostable and can go back to the origin to become food for the soil. And so that is a macro view of a system. There's a bit more nuance, um, but that's a macro view of a system. And that's just how I see things. And I see um, humans' relationship with nature. So humanity and nature are in a toxic relationship. I can just see this relationship largely exacerbated by the industrial revolutions, how humans are selfish and are pillaging nature mm -hmm. to give ourselves prosperity, to feed ourselves, but not feeding nature in the process. And now we're feeling that sort of Nasty yeah, now it's coming home to roost, right? And these things I'm pointing out is, you know, macro views of, you know, humans' history with nature. And it just comes very naturally to me. It's just how I see things. So that's how I would describe sort of that cognitive process of, of, of seeing the world. And then micro, what, what is that? I guess I have a tendency, which I'm sure we could extrapolate, a tendency to go so deep into a subject. So the human cell, I'm fascinated by the relationship of human cells to the relationship of soil, mm -hmm. the microbiome of the soil or the sort of fertility of um, soil health and the, the sort of the health of the human cell and uh, the relationship between those two things, which seem, you know, why are they connected? Mm -hmm. But I'm fascinated with that connection and they're, they're intimately connected that's a very uh, microbiological thing to study um, and its relationship it's deep to and specific and the focused. macro relationship of how humans farm soil and that's a very macro view of yep. um, agriculture I guess as a farmer from a farming family when you look at industry and agriculture as big macro mm. topics mm. and industries uh and then you throw in some human psychology yeah. in terms of our relationship, which I guess has historically been take, 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 take. Yeah. And obviously we we need to change that mm. that balance. The the kind of collective consciousness of humanity sees nature in a way which is wrong, sees our place on earth as anthropocentric so anthropocentric means like we see ourselves as above and separate to nature so what i try and do with the work at silo mostly when i do writing or presentations not so much feeding people but is is show people that we are part of nature 
the anthropocentric worldview is that we are superior to it. And so we can just, it's just feeding our, you know, brilliance. Uh, and that it will be there forever and yeah. we don't have to worry about its future. And that is the greatest mistake in human history is seeing ourselves as separate to it. So it's just some of these things we're talking about, these observations is just so clearly like yes. you know seeing this relationship um and that is uh, motivating silo that's what mo motivates i'm sure both of our work in in lots of ways so the the third word that you chose was mercurial which is a great word just tell me a bit about that my mum has chickens and sometimes when I'm up north and seeing her, I, I just stand at the chicken pen and watch them running around. And that's just like the, um, the, the attention in my mind. It's just like, whoosh, 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 just dancing around different subjects and go down one pathway and then dart to another pathway. And it's just very tangential. And it means sometimes when, if I'm asked a question a minute later, I'll be talking about something completely different. And I don't know what the question was again. And um, I never, and then I get to the end of the sentence. I'm like, what was I saying? How do I end this? Um, so yeah. What was just, the question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's very, very common. You've talked a bit about, I guess, your, your passion for looking at food from a sort of systems and a regeneration and a relationship and a psychology perspective. Mm. What what about like taste and flavor and what does food mean to you from that side of things? I feel like um the food is the um the flower. Within the flower you've got lots of different parts, the stem, the roots, the leaves, the the roots might be um the farm, the farmers, the farming, um, the stem might be the supply chain, the leaves might be the staff, and the flower is the dish, is the um, the drinks, the dish, the food. It's the beautiful expression of a system. Um, the it's flower. the nectar, right? It's Yeah, it's the nectar, but it is um, connected, um, and it couldn't exist, obviously, without all of those other important parts of the, uh, the flower. And you're not... Um... I went to cooking school. You didn't go to cooking school. You're a chef and I'm not a chef. Um, I think there's something in that. <laughs> I make drinks and you make food. Well, I don't know about yourself, Ben. How did you transition from education to to drinks? I mean, very badly in the <laughs> sense of I, I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't wait to leave school and I didn't go to university and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, but I know that food and agriculture and nature, you know, we're, we're just in my blood growing up from sacks of potatoes from our fields in the kitchen. Mm. And although I thought it was a playground, you know, playing around in corn bins and on tractors and that's really, I don't know, that's kind of stayed mm. with me and I'm... I just want things to taste nice and I'm interested in where they come from and I'm interested in, massively interested in the fact that we've got 47,000 edible plants that we know of in this world and yet our diets and what, how we've been conditioned of what we eat and drink is actually so incredibly limited and I think that that variety and diversity in taste and in flavour and in plants you know, I, I 
step back, see the blueprint, there's obviously a massive correlation in terms of how we approach people's brains and how we think about the way people think. How did your parents nurture your... Hold on um, a minute, I'm... <laughs> your aptitude for uh, interest, passions, skills, knowledge. At home, it was it was like go be outside and and I I could make my own fun and I could mm. create my own worlds and I mm. could and I get super into like creating dens and booby traps mm. and or making the the best bow and arrow I could make, yeah. you know? My parents were just great in just allowing me to discover all of that. Mm. And But if you hated school, I'm assuming you didn't like flourish in school. I was discouraged from art from about the age of 11, which I look back and I'm like mental. Mm. Um, and yeah, I was just really naughty. Uh, yeah, I was really naughty at school, but sport kept me at school. Yeah. What were you like at school? Yeah, very similar childhood. Very similar. Yeah, I was also quite good at sports. And that was a bit of a saving grace socially um, because I was painfully shy. You you seem a little bit more charismatic than than, than I am. Um, was, was you always charismatic or did you learn that? I think I... I I sort of do it as part of my job and I it's weird like I hate being in a room full of people but I'm happy to stand up in front of a thousand people and yeah. talk yeah same same and I don't know what it is it's like well I'm in control so I know when the beginning is I know when the middle is mm. I know when the end is and I'm not in conversation so, so, so I'm um, socially awkward, but particularly good on stage. And I have a different sort of re reasoning process than, than you've just sort of suggested, which I'm not sure, you know, right or wrong. But um, for me, I have and have always had, and I'm very, very aware of, aware of uh, low self-esteem. There is this um, subconscious part of me that wants to tell the world that I'm not worthless. I'm an expert of a subject and I know I'm an expert of a subject. So I thrive at the fact that there is this subject that, uh, that proves to myself unconsciously that I'm not a failure. So become a, a master of a subject f f for maybe that reason, maybe that's somewhere part of the tapestry in the terms of like obsessively learning to the point of like mastery. So I can really relate to the sort of, oh, is, is this going to be any good? And do people care? And are people going to come to my restaurant? And do people, mm. you know, like what I'm sort of thinking and saying? But then the flip side of, well, I can master this mm. and I'm the master of this. My default psychology is a fearful one. It's a, um, a psychology that is uh, like on a loop of like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And it's um, being aware of that 
pattern of behavior, being conscious of it and knowing that it's creeping out of my unconscious because I spent 10 years of childhood feeling not great about myself, you know, feeling shy and afraid and fearful that um, I'm not good enough. I'm, you know, people are going to judge me better, better wear really plain clothing. So nobody notices me and and I'm going to sit at the back kind of side to the class where it's, no one's going to ask me a question. I'm not standing out in any way. I'll, I'll, I'll walk down the side of the street. I'll, I'll stand on the edge of the group and I won't say anything provocative, you know, and I was constantly spending my life thinking in these fearful um, states. But and where I, is this adoption of the need to camouflage? Where has that belief come from? I think uh, this is going to get quite personal quite quick, but when your parent, your primary caregiver, um, doesn't give you affection as a baby, that's where it comes from. So instead of just doing a thing... Mm. I assume my unconscious assumes that <laughs> I need to excuse myself for doing this thing because, you know, like, oh, I'm a burden. I'm a burden on the people around me. So I need to excuse what I'm doing and I still do it. I still constantly excuse or have to explain why I'm doing everything to the people around me instead of just doing it because of that place of like, I'm not good enough. I um, do stupid things and things I'm unworthy. So I need to tell people why I'm doing it to get their permission, to get validation because I didn't get that. And so awareness you know, that training, training, it's like going to the gym, I go to therapy, I'm like training my brain to be like aware that I have these cycles of thought from a place of fear, a place of um, unworthiness, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm doing these things. And when you're aware of it, you can slowly change your behavior. Let's talk a bit more about your brain, Doug. Um What's your understanding of neurodivergence and neurodiversity and different thinking? Um, I think instinctually, I understand it. Um, I study human intelligence and creativity in these deep warrens of like understanding. But in terms of like terminology, I um, hesitate perhaps in certain conversations around neurodivergence because I don't want to say the wrong, use the wrong language, you know, words like Asperger's versus autism. Like I'm hesitant to use them confidently. Yeah. And look, just on the topic, Asperger's versus autism, I guess for anyone listening, watching, we kind of, my personal view shared by others that we kind of we don't say Asperger's anymore. Mm. Um, and if you would like to know more on that, go go look up uh, Mr. Asperger and you would find out why. Um, because it's got, yeah, it's got a pretty dark and kind of sordid history, uh, that name and that term. I just know that the words in this sort of realm of, neurodivergence are so unapproachable mm. they're not nice to say they're not easy to write i'm not dyslexic but i have to think about writing the word dyslexic and that that's just not helpful right mm. that's just not not easy and so if we've got this if there's this world of sort of 
people who think differently and it's unapproachable and it's complicated mm. and it's awkward and people don't want to say the wrong thing and they don't know how to write stuff like what hope is there of sort of changing society's perception mm. to be like yeah. this is just people who think differently and communicate yeah. differently with the world and interact differently with the world an incredible um quote comes to mind you know if society is a mirror art is the hammer that smashes the mirror <laughs> it smashes the perception like you were just saying we can't fix the problems of the world with the same thinking that created those problems yeah you know, we need to think differently this cabinet behind us our neuro spicy kind of contribution cabinet is is kind of littered with people who have slightly gone against the grain or slightly mm. done things differently or challenged I guess and maybe how something had always been done in order to move move the world forward mm. um, and I can imagine yeah a lot of people met with a lot of resistance yeah um, yeah. I think there's it's really important to share another perspective here and it's that there are two types of reality an objective reality um, this wooden floor and this table is made from metal. Then there is an imagined reality. So imagined reality is um, born from stories. So money is an imagined reality. You know, you give a chimpanzee five pounds for a bunch of bananas and it'll be like, no, I, uh, you know, that doesn't, that's a story, a human story. I want to eat these bananas. They taste much sweeter than a piece of paper with some ink on it. And, um, you know, we're all born into a world where um, there are stories, uh, rhetorics, there are uh, things that we ascribe to and um, unconsciously paths that we follow um, conform, homogenize, etc. Aspire to. Yeah. yeah. Now, a bin... <laughs> was a story. There's no bin in nature. I spent 23 years of my life believing in the bin, believing in its objective value in, in society, in the world, ascribing to it, putting litter in it, etc. And then there's this moment where art, the, the hammer to the mirror of reality, smashed the bin apart for me. And I was like, ah, what is a bin? What is waste? Where did it come from? And how do we get rid of it? And this is this pathway of thought behind that broken mirror. Just to sum up what you've, what you've just so beautifully articulated, you've, you've literally, you've looked at something and thought about it in a completely different way than historically for 200 years, human beings have thought and thought about it because you've questioned it and you've challenged it and you've interrogated it and you've had a completely different perspective on it that is why you are the master. Just want to... Um, bring us out of our rabbit warren for a second uh, onto the mainland. Have you been diagnosed? What's your views on diagnosis from a neurodivergence perspective? Mm. I think it would be quite good to know that um, I have a certain brain chemistry, a sort of a, a brain architecture. It would be nice to be 
sort of given a sort of an official diagnosis. I just never go to the doctor. I find the whole process really frustrating and bureaucratic. So no, no, I've not been diagnosed. I know very deeply that, that my brain is is it's divergent. <laughs> and I love that. I'm so proud of that. I thrive on that. And not always. When I was young, I really didn't. And um, I just had a particular point in which it, the, the switch flipped and I've embraced it of sort of what I would once be ashamed of. Now I wear it like armor. So I don't really want to, you know, wait God knows how many years to get that diagnostic. I, I, I don't want to go through that process. I find it infuriating at the best of times. It's interesting. And, you know, the, the view as it stands uh, amongst, you know, a fair amount of people within the sort of neurodivergent community is that uh, given the, the research across the whole spectrum of neurodivergence has so largely been focused on, ironically, people like us, you know, white boys, and we still don't really know enough. And therefore, self-diagnosis today is as valid as it isn't. I'm in a sort of uh, philosophical crossroad in my head. And as much as I have pools of anger that will probably manifest for the rest of my life, it drives, I channel that anger into um, a, a project and Silo and all the projects around Silo. And I use that anger that was born through that lack of support, lack of nurturing. I use it to my advantage and I wouldn't change that. You've been listening to The Hidden 20%. If you're still knocking about, then let me introduce you to the band. First up, main man on the mic, host Ben Branson, our wonderful producer, Bella Neal, and the man who'll probably try and cut this bit, video editor, James Scriven. Not forgetting our wondrous theme tune by Jackson Greenberg. Lovers or haters, we want to know, so be sure to leave a review wherever you're listening. For the lovers amongst you, you'll find us on TikTok and Instagram at Hidden20Podcast or over on Hidden20.org where you can join our mailing list. <laughs>